Good evening, everyone. My name is Michael Coleman. I run the Soundworks Collection, and it's an incredible honor to be moderating tonight's talk. We have an incredible group of people joining us, and it's always nice when you have director's chairs out to have the director. So this is super exciting, too, to have Damien with us tonight. So let's bring up our panel, our director, Damien Chazelle. Our re-recording mixer, sound designer, and supervising sound editor, Eileen Lee. Our supervising dialogue editor, Susan Dawes. And our re-recording mixer team, uh, John Taylor and Frank Matanya. Everyone. So tonight's gonna be really exciting because a lot of times we, when they have these conversations, they'll show you the whole film and there'll be a short kind of brief opportunity to talk about a certain subject and tonight's specifically about the sound obviously of First Men and um, I'm super excited because the team has prepared a bunch of clips and we're gonna have a chance to experience them in a way that I don't think anyone has maybe if I'm right Eileen has maybe seen before heard before maybe is exclusive yeah so uh, some 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 of us has kind of like seen some of these clips but um, <laughs> I know you guys we'll have <laughs> yeah you guys have definitely Not seen this <laughs> I, I think what, what you guys were seeing before this started were some um, animatics and I think just kick things off with you Damien um, I'd love for you to kind of describe what these animatics were when you put them together and how this maybe um, helped you share your vision with with your sound team these would have been done, uh, I mean, certainly in, in prep, relatively early on in prep, I think. Um, actually, I think most of these were finished right before I went to Atlanta for the beginning of hard prep, which was maybe about three months before shooting. Um, and uh, so certainly these were mostly a tool for principal photography crew to, to sort of all be on the same page and know what to do. But, um, but we wound up kind of doing these with sort of rough soundtracks, um, uh, no dialogue, um, but uh, but we had some uh, uh, mock-ups of cues from 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 the composer, from Justin, and then for sound, uh, uh, I worked with an editor, Peter Dowd, who uh, you know basically used a collage of stuff from uh, documentary archival sort of footage and stuff that sounded kind of right. And so it kind of wound up, I think, for post-production for, for Tom Cross and editorial and for all these guys in sound, uh, serving as a rough, again, very rough, uh, maybe barometer guide guideline for what we, what we wanted. So when you first, because obviously you worked with Eileen and with Millie, who's not here tonight, but on La La Land, when you reached out to them, what what did you share? What did you tell them that you know you you were already probably researching and thinking about for this film with the tone and the soundscape? Uh, well, I I, I I don't know. I mean, I probably reached out to them before these were done. I mean, I probably was talking with you guys uh, um, as soon as it felt like the movie was was gonna be made, and uh, and you know, other than the basics, the script and whatnot. I mean, I think it was just a sort of basic conversation of what we wanted the style to be, just a sort of um, raw, intimate, gritty kind of a pr documentary approach, basically, to space travel. Um, not clean, not, um, not, not scrubbed in any kind of way, both visually and sonically. Um, I think that's a little bit all I said. Um, and then certainly as soon as these animatics were done, I was sending them off. Um, I remember having a little kind of walk around this facility with, with, uh, with JT and Frankie and um, I think we probably talked about much the same thing, so just what, what the general aesthetic of 
the movie wanted to be, but also making sure that um, in that intimacy, there was also scope to it. There was a, a level of kind of uh, immersion and um, uh, just uh, almost like a virtual reality experience of space. Um, and 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 JT had just worked on the Revenant. I remember, so we talked about you know talked about that because that I thought was such a great sound achievement as well. And then obviously Eileen and Millie and I had 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 a great experience in La La Land together too. So um, it was fun to actually have a little bit of a mix of people I had just worked with uh, before and then um, some some new faces. The, the thing too, us was wondering coming off of La La Land, very different obviously than what ha what the material is in First Man, but. You go into a research period, a production or a pre-production phase, and a lot of the films that kind of that came up. You said uh, Das Boot, Saving Private Ryan, Son of Saul, United '93. How do you look at something and say, "I appreciate what they're doing, but I want to make it my own"? What What can you say just about that process of being early on researching your own and then kind of letting these guys have creative freedom? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I, I I think one helpful thing with with those movies, and it's kind of I find it useful in general as, as sort of when you're trying to find comps are that they're, they don't actually correspond to the subject matter of, the, you know, they're not space movies. Um, I think you can easily go into a, get stuck in a corner if you're, you know, for example, a movie like this uh, and, and your only reference points are 2001 or The Right Stuff or, or even documentaries like you know, For All Mankind. Um, you know, all of those uh, I think are kind of going to be references no matter what, in a way, whether you want them to or not, um, uh, for all of us sitting here. But it felt like, you know, the, the impulse was to try to think outside the box and try to find a different way into uh, that subject matter. Um, so it was a lot of just searching. Um, it was a lot of searching rooted in the archival material first, um, just kind of seeing what sort of images or sounds that would suggest. Um, I think I wound up probably sending all these people, you know, uh, uh, an annoying amount of links and and uh, and just kind of DVD recommendations and things like that. Um, over in Atlanta for the uh, principal photography crew, we were doing screenings every week uh, during prep. Um, just getting prints and shipping them over to Atlanta and just, uh, but again, not space movies. It'd be stuff like, uh, yeah, like The Thin Red Line or, or, or like um, some of the movies you mentioned or, or other documentaries from the 60s, Gimme Shelter, Primary, Cinema Verite documentaries. Um, and, uh, you know, a DOS boot. And yeah, you just try to, you try to kind of find your way um, uh, uh, into very well-trod subject matter through maybe outside sources. And, and something that, find that um, is great with um, directors and sound teams or collaborators when they have that relationship, that that um, history, is that um, they'll have earlier interaction than usual. Like in this case, um, I remember asking Eileen earlier, of, you know, when did you first find out about this project? How, how far along? A lot of times, you know, the expectation is, oh, you know, it's it's too late to do anything creative. It's too late to do, to make any creative decisions. Um, to make any influence on the picture. And that's not the case with this. You guys have an incredible, also with your composer, Justin Hurwitz, how it works with sound. So at what point did you take your screenplay and share it with the sound team? Everyone sits down in, you know, in a room and really start choreographing this, you know, this dance that you guys come up with. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely a big believer in trying to start that process as early as possible. When, when, the, when the slate is clean and it's, there's infinite possibilities to try to just um, create a situation where people want to, uh, you know, freely think outside the box and brainstorm and ping ideas off of each other. Justin and I, you know, it's a it's a 
particular thing because we go back from from college, and so we've always just sort of worked together the same way. Um, it started off with music based movies about music, so it sort of, in a way, made sense um, from any standpoint that uh, that music would come first. But we wound up kind of applying it to this as well. So as soon as there were drafts of the script, Justin was working on melodies and and first just at the piano, and then uh, with larger instrumentations and mock-ups and whatnot. Uh, which again I used in some of these animatics, and then um, you know, but also uh, I would be kind of you know running these animatics by people like I Lang or by Tom Cross, the editor, and just sort of a asking them what they thought, you know, trying to get just feedback of what was working, what wasn't, could they get some understanding of what I wanted to try to you know get across. Um, and then just start talking about methodologies about how to do certain things. You know, I think that's where a lot of the stuff that these guys wound up doing, like Eileen going to uh, SpaceX launches to record there, and, and Frankie, uh, you know, sort of going scouring through spacesuits and whatnot. Uh, and they can talk about this way better than I. I think that's where a lot of these ideas started to kind of come from was was early conversations, probably before shooting even, just about how do we do this. And so that's a great um, setup for some of the pictures from the record trip. So Eileen, can you give me a sense of okay? You have the screenplay, you have a list of things, and you're like, all right, what does a Gemini sound like? What does something sound like? What does a spacewalk sound like? Where did you start and what were you able to do? Because you have to get kind of creative. There's a lot of archival. NASA has a wonderful, you know, kind of royal uh, open source library, but what was your kind of your short list of like, let's go out and record rockets? Well, um, so for us, one of the things, um, you know, of course, this has like many different um, spacecraft scenes, and um, one of the, and then you know, plus it has like NASA cooperation. Um, so um, I just wanted to try to see if we could capture our own take of um, different rocket launches, different sizes of rockets. And um, earlier conversation with Damien too, um, he really wanted us to capture like the sound of the Saturn V rocket that launched the Apollo mission, um, you know, from having talked to people who were there at that time during the launch, how they described it, and, you know, it's just so massive and uh, in size, and, you know, it's still the currently the world's most powerful rocket in the world. So um, we went through the uh, NASA archives and stuff just, just to see what they have, but um, it's hard to get good quality recordings of them. So, you know, so we, we planned out and chased after like space, uh, SpaceX, ULA, and even smaller um, rocket companies in Mojave, in the Mojave Desert for like lunar landers, just so we can collect different sizes of rockets and thrusters and even like um, that fuel flow um, when they're pumping fuel or you know, steam releases, anything that could bring in some authenticity in it. And also uh, from seeing the um, animatics earlier, um, we know that a lot of the shots are gonna be shot really tight in confined space. So, um, and it's a very turbulent ride. And so um, we wanted to capture like uh, uh, good turbulent sounds that, you know, um, that are authentic enough Sounding so you know we scoured through and recorded different things, but you no know, one of the things that we did was to record uh, motion simulator vehicles, especially you know like 
when the machine injects low frequencies to like just naturally just shake the entire vehicle. So we recorded all those things. And so it sounds like it's more coming from a confined space and better than someone just holding something and shaking it. And something too, which when we start listening to these clips, you'll recognize that it's not always the literal sound that is the best sound. You have animals, you have, I think, fireballs, or there are other descriptors you have in here of what you're using. But um, what was the perfect combination when you guys started maybe getting on the stage? You do your first pass, you lay down maybe a handful of effects, and you kind of get a sense of some tone. Uh, one of the things you did mention was that Damien would come back and say, it doesn't feel like there's enough momentum or like there's a lull, potentially. So can you talk about kind of the balance of coming up with the character of, of these launches and then also this concept of like, we need to keep it the energy continuing, carrying that energy? Um, so, you know, um, for all these various spacecraft scenes, um, you know, the way that Damien and Tom had cut it, um, each one has its own unique, um, different take on it. And, um, and, you know, we, you know, obviously we, we started off like when we did the editorial process and you know, we tried to make it as like real as possible, but you no, know, um, Damien thought like it needs to get more and more intense to get more and more inside, um, Neil Armstrong's head, um, like we are in there. And so, you know, um, he started suggesting and, you know, uh, we also start, so we start introducing like, you know, um, Rent, no, like more of a heightened surreal sounds. No, that's when we start using like processed animal vocals or um, um, different um, uh, tones or um, various gunfire. Um, and with the way that they added the picture too, so um, that's like a, you hear the sound and then you see the response in the picture editing. Uh, just to set up maybe even our first clip here um, with the X-15 scene, um, the dynamics that you guys achieve are phenomenal where you really play with the highs, highs, and incredible dropping out the silence and allowing the audience to really kind of be on their toes. Um, and maybe we'll talk about that after we maybe show the first pass. So. For, for at least for this clip, maybe Damien, can you set up the X-15? Why did you choose? I mean, this is a 1961, kind of opens the film. Why did you choose this this film, this scene? And what was it about that you like you wanted to really get across sonically? Uh, well, I think I, th I think it just felt like a uh, <clears throat> a good way to uh, throw the audience right in the middle of it. Um, and I think Josh, uh, the screenwriter, and I liked um, liked. Uh, you know the 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 way that uh, the way that this plane is 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 kind of you know this weird bridge between aviation and space flight. I mean, it really is. Uh, 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 the X-15 was a very weird anomaly of an aircraft that wound up kind of inspiring the shuttle much later. Um, but uh, but you know, it was one is one of these. Uh, uh, planes essentially that were designed to go into space um, and uh, and I think because it's a lesser known part of Neil's life because it's a lesser known part of the history of space flight or history of aviation even um, it just felt like okay you know we, we know we're eventually in this movie going to get to things that are very familiar um, let's start off with something that maybe is uh, you know is maybe so unfamiliar that audiences won't even be entirely sure what they're watching right off the bat I mean we even sort of disguise Neil's face for a little bit off the bat and uh, don't have him talking or anything like that. So just to try to really let it just be about sensory immersion 
that sound and image on a pure visceral level, and then we can start to kind of guide our audience into the story. Awesome. So, is, <clears throat> Eileen, is this first clip going to be just the effects? Is that right? Um, the first clip is uh, part of the effects because uh, some of, for all these some of these set piece scenes, um, you know, we typically have like layers and mid layers and dozens of um, effects tracks, like 40, 50 tracks sometimes. So um, they're split into 15 pre-dub groups. But um, so for this first pass, it's just a few selected sounds, um, roughly around like 50% of the effects and backgrounds um, in it. So, um, and, and this is also in 7-1, right? Yes, this first pass is in 7-1, is a rough mix. Um, later on, then we'll play the full mix for you in that mist. Um, you want to listen? Let's, yeah, let's, take, um, yeah, well, well, let's okay. play the first clip, the first pass, and then uh, we'll talk about it. There's nothing quite like hearing it in that way because when we play it again, you hear the whole the whole idea. It's, it seems like oh, well, it's kind of like revealing the trick. You know, you understand how 
the minds of these guys was, you know, how they came up with that idea. I think some of the, when you sent me your notes about this scene, it said, playing card deck for the sound of the clicker. Uh, it's a crucial because there's moments we'll, we'll hear in, when we play it back that it goes quiet and it focuses. You guys focus in on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the clicking, yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe if you guys, great opportunity for you guys to jump in here. What can you say about mixing scenes like this when Damien, like, did you have that note of going quiet right before the crash? Was there a note saying we should focus in on, like how much direction was given? How much kind of creative play did you guys have on the stage? Whoever wants to pick it up and go. Lots of direction, <laughs> good direction. No, it was, uh, this is, you know, overall, you know, from actually months of talking to Damien on the, on the bench, Damien and Tom, um, because they cut upstairs and they would eat lunch down here. So we were able to ask them questions. And basically other than the, the notion of this film being sort of documentary style, uh, it's really about dynamics. Um, when you watch this film, it's, it's really a, about making sure that when we get to those big moments, those big moments hit. And the way to make that happen is making sure that the rest of the stuff, you're not greedy with sound, that everything is in its place um, to make sure that when it's big, it just snaps. And that, that's what this film does. And you know, hitting, hitting the audience sort of pretty hard with this first scene uh, sets that up perfectly, I think. It's just beautiful. So this, when you're you're about to see the the whole piece together with all the sound and music and um, the breaths, uh, the breaths are definitely a, a tool that that Tom and Damien use to make sure that it's just, um, you know, that that sort of anxiousness is sold and calmness at the same time. You'll hear in a minute. Uh, was this early on when you guys worked on this in, the, in your guys's production, or was it the end? Like. Was there any linearity aspect of working, starting from the beginning of the film through in terms of when it came to spotting? We kind of uh, did, did this and mixed this in order um, of the movie. Um, but um, I know, you know, um, a lot of it we had to tell the audience because basically um, the X-15 is bouncing off the Earth's atmosphere and it's you know, he's having a hard time to get back down to earth. And so we have to kind of, besides visually seeing it, we kind of have to sh tell it um, a lot of it through sound, so either through the communications, the dialogue, or even just the, in the sound effects, the, the, the quiet ticking of the ultimate to like that he's gaining in height. Awesome. Um, maybe let, let's play the, the final mix version, and then we can talk a little more about the whole story. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
It's awesome. I don't want this to be the sound show that the sound team goes deaf at. So if you guys feel a little, you, surround, little surround heavy, yeah, yeah. Obviously, hearing that, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of use of sidewalls. There's incredible dynamics. And then there's also aspects of subtlety. Like, can you talk to me about the foley in, in a scene like that? What, what can you say about the small nuances? Are there, is there anything that, that really comes out? Um, I don't think we got, I think we start after the section, but one of my favorite parts is when we don't see the, the uh, release from the pylon in this clip from the B-52 as the X-15 gets to altitude and then, and then it can throttle its, its uh, rocket engine um, and it climbs and, it, and, and as it's sculpted, it has that dynamic so it's, it's a big event and it gets to almost silent. And Neil, his, as he gets the zero Gs, the pin floats to mid-cockpit, and he, he grabs it and brings it down. So there's the, the suit sound itself. Um, we went to Edwards Air Force Base, and we worked with Joe Walker's X-15 suit. And Joe flew 25 X-15 missions. So to hear it in the movie, and, and Joe passed in 1966. So to have that little piece of foley, uh, the grab of the pin and the, and the movement of the, of the restraints and stuff was, I thought, you know, really touching. Because again, it's the dynamic range, yes, but it's the subtleties that, that really make the detail stick out. Also, um, the, the comms with, with, you know, the center, whatever, wherever he's, Neil's hearing back from is incredibly important. And Maybe it's a question for Dan, maybe, maybe a question for Susan. How much of that was scripted? How much of that was kind of figured out timing-wise? How did you guys kind of choreograph what was actually being heard and what, what ended up on the screen? Uh, well, it, the content was all scripted, um, uh, but in the script there was just more of it. So I think uh, it definitely became a sort of paring down, less is more. Uh, kind of process through editing, as so often happens. Um, but, you know, th there were moments where we then realized something that we had taken away we needed. Um, but, like, listening back, one thing I was sort of reminded of, and, and this this really fell on Susan's shoulders and, and Millie's, was, um, was more important than what the comms were actually saying were the degree to which you could hear the comms, the degree to which static was overwhelming, what the voice was, the, the idea of distance, the idea of losing signal, that actually became something that wasn't so much in the script that we just really realized was actually an even better tool to explain to people, oh, something's going wrong, than the jargon. And we definitely experienced that in some of the other clips when, when he is taking off, like comms drop out and Neil's by himself and in the ship and it's, you know, very isolating and it's super effective. And I think you guys use that in a way that didn't seem, you know, it felt like this is this could definitely happen. This could be, you know, the, a real life situation. Eileen, what, what can you say about you, <laughs> figuring out the right tone in Susan 2, figuring out that tone of the comms? Because obviously, like, we've all heard Neil's walk on the moon. We know what it sounds like. It's not the greatest fidelity. So how much cleanup do you do? <laughs> what, what kind of effects do you do? So I, I know Frankie says, you know, it's mixed analog in a way. And, you know, what can you say about that? How clean can you get it until it's too much? Yeah, so how so much we can do a lot of cleanup, but you're right. I mean, you want to stay true to the archival, especially in a film like this where you're trying to convey realism, you know, the documentary style and stuff. So, um, 
I know we're going to look at that clip later, but are we doing that now, Michael? Not necessarily, but I mean, like, you just an overall kind of perspective. What can you what say I think about? What's interesting about what we were just yeah. talking about is like um, how you know altering the level at which intelligibility is there or not there reflects the perspective of our main character, right? So it's really a, a visceral way to show like what Neil's going through. You know, like when you hear something's talking but it's not making sense, then you're really showing what the What's happening in the scene? We really did uh, futz the f of this movie. The futz tells you, gives you distance also. So the less futz, the closer you are to Earth, and the more futz, the further away you are from Earth. So as you notice that one, that's the one transmission that gets sort of garbled. That's when he starts floating up, and you see the counter tell him his you know altitude is gaining, and the voice basically completely disappears, and. Like Damien was saying, I mean, that's something that we were sort of discovering as we go. So we actually kind of kept three, f three types of futzes at all times so we could always scramble in a little bit more as necessary. But in, in, uh, in this scene, it was, you know, again, the, the breathing that um, sort of gives you the, that effect of where his anxiousness is. And then the futzes that give you that very calm. And that was the one thing I love about that. They were very calm. Everything that came over the calm, nothing was excited. It was all very calm. And then putting the futz on it gives you that just reality. It also sets the time and place. I mean, comms probably sound like that still, you know, even with modern day technology. Damien, what did you find going back when you said, you know, we would love to have a, maybe a more recent version of a certain footage or sound when you went back to the archives of NASA or even I saw you guys went to like the JFK archives. Like what did you find people were willing to like get, allow you to have in terms of revisiting archives and what was just kind of like this is the best we have, you know? Uh, well, I mean, people were willing to let us have anything to, to, to an extent to which I was really, uh, it was a pleasant surprise because, you know, normally you're kind of chasing down rights to various things. But NASA really, um, well, as you're referring to, really does have this, uh, uh, you know, this sort of open book um, policy that it's had since the 60s. And so um, anything they have, uh, they they let us use. The problem is that they don't have everything that, you know, the, the funding for archival uh, uh, has, uh, has dwindled um, to almost nothing. So, so there's stuff that you know is somewhere deep down in some basement somewhere in the country, but there's no one to find it um, or, or process it. And then so, Eileen shows up and no. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, yeah, we did wind up having to send some of these uh, people and other people as well as kind of detectives. And it, d it did involve a lot of t detective work. But um, but I think, uh, you know, in a lot of cases, it's, it's also, you know, required recreation. So, you know, there's some instances in the movie where, where we use actual comms, but, you know, in most of the cases, it's, you know, n nothing in that flight is, uh, uh, was ever recorded in, in a way that was um, uh, preserved, you know. So you try to listen to, I spent actually, you know, days just listening to uh, just, whole missions on, you know, I mean, you can find, when the comms exist, you can find them very easily. Most of them are on YouTube, you know, and you can just listen and you just try to plug into the, the rhythm of them and the cadence of them. And I'd send them to the actors as well, whether or not it was comms we were literally recreating just to sort of get people into the, uh, I think the poetry of it, there's really a beautiful kind of cadence to how these people uh, in this line of work in this era talked. Um, and uh, so we wanted to try to you know, preserve that. And then, um, and then some of these would be actors we'd record on set. Other people would be ADR sessions with Millie and Susan um, recording people here uh, on the stage. I think you get people who are so familiar with this material. I, I 
I was born in the 80s. I was not around when any of this stuff happened. But uh, I appreciate being able to recreate these experiences. I imagine, like, just setting up this Gemini 8 walk, I can't imagine, you know, if those guys were still around to share those stories, you know, what they would have to say. But I think you interpreted it in a way, and this may be just a great setup for you to talk about that, how you t your spin on something like the Gemini 8 walk and, or, you know, approach to the rocket. And fact, what, what people really knew about it. So what was that ba delicate balance and how did that even play into like a scene like that one with the, uh, the, the Gemini walk-up? Uh, yeah, I mean there you're, you're definitely balancing uh, literal reality, documentary reality with um, again sort of uh, trying to put people in the mind of someone. Um, and so, uh, so I wanted the audience to really feel every inch of fear or stress that, that, that I would have felt um, walking up to that capsule. Um, uh, we weren't able to talk to Neil himself about about this flight. We were able to talk to the the person he flew with, Dave Scott, um, who who was able to you know remember every particular of the flight. And then again, you wind up going through the comms. You go through whatever footage there is. Um, for Gemini, it's a lot harder than Apollo. There's much less stuff, um, uh, recordings and whatnot with Gemini than with Apollo. So you're doing a fair amount of connecting of the dots, but I think really, especially on a sound level, what it really became was uh, once we sort of knew the broad strokes of what it actually would be like, really uh, making the audience feel that emotion, that, that, that gnawing fear. I wanted it really to feel almost like a horror movie for that, that stretch uh, up, up all the way till they're into the capsule. I think this is also a great uh, representation of how you're setting or playing into the, pr the perspective of Neil, very much so. Of, mm -hmm. When you come in, it's from his perspective. He's looking out the window. There's a rocket going off, and the lights are shaking. And it's just, it's, it puts you right there. It almost feels like it's a, you know, a theme park ride. It's just like overwhelming. Visibly. Yeah, and, and 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 a lot of that again is the sound because I think especially with Gemini, we knew that we were going to really be ruthless about where the camera was. We were never going to be somewhere that Neil wasn't. So that means most things that are happening you're not seeing because he has a very limited vantage point, especially once he's in the capsule. Um, so sound was gonna have to be the three-dimensionalizing aspect of this. So Eileen, you, you have a scene like this, maybe there's some visual effects that are coming in and you have, or obviously you have the main bulk of that scene together. Where do you start, where do you find a foundation and how, how do you start designing even a, a scene like this? Um, for this uh, particular sequence, um, when Neil and Dave walks up um, towards the uh, Germany to be strapped in um, because, you know, uh, like Damien said, uh, it's almost like we have to play up the, we have to, you know, express the suspense to, to the lead up of Neil's first space mission and his first rocket launch. Um, and so um, partially, you know, um, we try to give it a more of an abstract kind of feel and um, by using also a certain sounds that could happen in that um, environment, like, you know, steam sounds, like something more rhythmic. So it feels like they are just like, you know, marching emotion. Um, and, and, and we introduce some um, subway thumbs. Um, it's almost like a little of a heartbeat motif um, or like to help add to the eeriness. Um, you know, we use some like uh, brake squeals like from trains and stuff. Um, even like, you know, as much as we want to try to use the sounds that, that could happen where you kind of see it, but, um, you know, just to help with some of the eeriness and the rhythmic 
vibe of it. Um, we also snuck in some like synth um, rhythmic beats and that you'll hear later. Awesome. Well, uh, let's take a listen. How did you guys come about coming up with the uh, the use of the air playing around? Because you hear the movement, especially in that pass. What, was that initial direction from you, Damien, or did you guys come kind of come to that conclusion? How did how did that all come about? Yeah, I think yeah, I think a lot of that was in the animatic. I mean, I I think that was less conscious uh, at the outset, just more, you know, sometimes you find and sort of cutting things together or using pieces of reference or or other movies or whatnot. You just uh, certain combinations happen that you stumble upon that you like. I think um, something about the swirling air around him, I'd say, was one of those more stumbled upon discoveries. Um, uh, and then we sort of, yeah, we kind of wedded ourselves to it. And so um, uh, Ai Lang and everyone here just sort of expanded upon that basic idea. But I, I think that was there in the animatic. Uh, spatial, the spatial information that the audience gets is so important, especially when we can definitely hear it in this pass when you hear, you know, something's 
drawing Neil's attention off to the back wall in a way. But what can you guys say about the mixing up uh, for you guys, for John and... That's all effects. So that's all that effects. Was, that was Eileen. <laughs> yeah. Eileen, what can you say? Um, well, it's, it's more of a um, um, subjective, abstract take of it. And so, you know, any kind of like swirling movements, um, um, we kind of, you know, um, had fun, you know, just panning it around the room a little bit. But some of them we have like um, breath, um, Wash buys um, that's kind of like um, treated inside like a glass impulse response just to kind of feel like you're almost like from inside the helmet and um, uh, and then you know later on you hear it in the full mix uh, with all the rest of the effects elements um, you know you start hearing the shaking and rattling of the lights that we kind of like um, panned it up um, you know to the ceiling so it feels like for the atmospherics, so it feels like you know it's above you, and then you know it goes away. But one good thing with this mix that we find out then in atmos, it's um, the full range surrounds. So for the weight and size of these rockets, um, it's not really about the loudness; it's more about how much uh, low end you could feel uh, in it to surround you. And you guys mixed here on the Hitchcock, right? Mm -hmm. Which is pretty cool to imagine that you're on the stage where they mix the film and intended how the director was you know wanting to make it happen um there's of course again the dynamics the moment when they close the hatch door and you get rid of everything how scary is it for for the sound team to go completely like you guys want to do something right or, or well when you when you hear the full uh, the full mix there's a little something there so yeah that, that's like a little tone in there that, so that's for you guys that's is, not for damien damien's like so take like, it all out draw it out because yeah. <laughs> it always feels real you know there's a realness to it yeah. so yeah there's yeah. definitely that sense of isolation but there, if it were if it was a complete dropout it'd feel fake so at that point because they have air running in their suits yeah all the time um, so at that point, it's really just about him, his internal breathing in his suit and the noise of the air rushing yeah. through the suit. It just gets quieter once the door shuts. So um, we play up, you know, it's almost like this heavy, uh, massive door is like locking them in. And we, so we also under the door sounds, we add in like this exaggerated air sucking sound. It's almost like you're being suffocated and being enclosed in this little confined space and um, to also play up with what our researchers, you know, when they're suited up, you don't really hear much. I remember watching, I was watching this scene. I was like, there's no way this thing is safe to be in. Like, there's no <laughs> way any part of this is like, should be legal. Uh, let's watch, let's watch the or listen to the mix and uh, then we'll, we'll chat about that. Two minus one minute and counting on the Atlas Agena launch.
is that? Hey, what are you doing? Has anybody got a Swiss Army hold Damien, at what point in your riding are you like, ah, let's let's do a little seatbelt issue? One like there's another in one of the other clips, oh, there's a bug in our cockpit. Like, where are these ideas coming from? Because they seem like you you pull people out and then you throw them right back in. How does that come? How does that come about? Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess I mean, uh, you know, in this case, a lot of it came from uh, the you know the, the actual historical record, and so um, the lucky thing was actually having a record that's so rich and so full of incident, more so than I'd expected, that there was plenty to draw from. Um, so the, the, so the, you know, the seatbelt um, issue would come from that. The, uh, the seagull, was, that just came, you know, the idea from an, an astronaut recalling something he saw, not on this mission, it was another mission, but just the idea of seeing birds outside the rocket window. Um, the bug was... That was <laughs> that. That's a little bit of creative license. I don't actually know of any uh, fly being sighted inside a capsule, but we did talk about it and and uh, <laughs> decided it was physically possible. Um, and Frankie often likes to lament that poor fly who almost became the first fly in space. And uh, well, we'll see this in a later clip. It all makes sense. I'm sorry, we're jumping so ahead close. here, but. Frankie, what can you say? Okay, fantastic. Like, there's uh, some notes here. Like, you guys used artifacts, sound recordings of the umbilical cord locks, glove creaks, spacesuit movement. How much? What's the blend of new versus old? Uh, yeah, we, um, as Damien mentioned earlier, Gemini is a much older mission than Apollo, so we didn't have access to Gemini artifacts. We tried really <laughs> hard. <laughs> Shut out. Um, but we did get access to uh, an Apollo spacesuit, an A7LB. So um, we recorded those in Frederica, Delaware, where the original manufacturer was located. And uh, so Alex Knickerbocker and I were shooting it and sending it back to JT and Bill Meadows on the stage to take a listen to it to see if we weren't in pristine recording um, environments. 
so we, we got those and shipped them off to Eileen and, and the team. And then they were augmented with some other things. But I guess the I would say the majority of it is is authentic to the era. Yeah, the uh, aluminum anodized um, umbilicals locking in. Um, I think we had some air in there. We have some some air um, that we recorded some of the naturals. Yeah, um, some of air the, in the suit. helmet air. Yes, and Love Creeks. Um, yeah. And then uh, we built a, a helmet box. Um, it's nothing profound. Um, it was been, it's been done time and time again. You were pretty excited. You were pretty excited though when you had this chance. You're like, oh, I finally get to do this thing that I've been thinking about. Right. I've seen it in the past, you know. So, but we, we had an opportunity. So we have great resources here at Universal and, and the guys. The the concept was let's not change microphone and helmets. Uh, because JT, we're going to the next reel. Okay, switch the Apollo helmet or switch to the high altitude helmet. So we don't we want to stay away from that. So we built a, a large, confined, almost soundproof box um, and put both helmets in it and mic'd them separately and so on and so forth. So if you listen to the breathing carefully through the film uh, from, from the X-15 to Gemini to Apollo, we had one helmet, which high, high altitude that played this scene. And when you get to the bubble helmet in, in the Apollo missions, that we switched helmets over to, to a, a, a replica of an, a, the Smithsonian was not down with me taking that on the plane. Uh, I thought you said Damien was, you know. Damien tried. We, we tried. We, 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 but uh, we didn't have enough clout to, to get a real one. But, but it, it sufficed. And uh, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. So you hear that throughout the film. That's fantastic. Um, so jumping ahead now, we have this launch sequence of the Gemini. It's like our, the, the audience's opportunity here to really be, like that perspective was like a very interesting perspective that Neil, that the audience has taken. And now you, you're, once again, you're gonna shift the perspective a little more. Like it's even, I think even more confined. Now he's in a seat. Now we're not gonna see any exteriors necessarily. We're not gonna really have any outside communication besides the comms. Like, Damon, what, what can you say about setting up just even more claustrophobia, more just kind of like, these guys are in this kind of rocket locked in and the audience is kind of, you know, going for the, along with the ride? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I, I think in a way it was just as simple as that idea of just keeping the camera inside and everything stemmed from that. Um, it's uh, it means more work for the sound team, really, because again, they, they, the sound has to do more heavy lifting. Um, but uh, it was just a view that I had always wanted to have, um, uh, you know, actually experiencing something that feels like real time. Uh, what the astronauts would experience from being on the ground to being in space, um, uh, not cutting, you know, uh, uh, time cutting during it, not cutting outside to something that feels like a safer, wide distance, um, just trying to kind of live every beat of it through them. It felt like that would be, um, that would be uh, the thing to do. I mean, some, how many films have we seen when it's that shot and it's like above the rocket and it takes off, you know, it's that kind of classic rocket takeoff shot and you do not do that. I, was, I, I mean, what can you say about... Um, feeling g-force and the speed because going back to what we were talking about before about uh damien asking to keep the tension not have any lulls how do you accentuate that how do you expand that ex stretch that over so much time the sequence you know is not very short how do you do that how, how do you create some interesting movement um so that's like one of the main challenge for 
us um, to create um, like this never-ending ascension of tension <laughs> um, without you know the usual conventional film editing breaks of like exterior shots so that you could re-amp up the sound again. So uh, with this, so we had to kind of get a little creative and like break it down to different stages of launch. And um, so we have to cheat in like, you know, as much um, sounds that would sell speed whenever we can. Um, so, you know, sometimes we would introduce like, um, um, like, Fireball buys or um, uh, different over overmodulated uh, explosions or gunfire, um, and um, just um, to help sell the um, the uh, ferocity of it, and also um, um, to sweeten some of these like explosions and stuff to help sell the size and weight of it. Um, that's when, you know, we also um, played in um, the sound of a recording that we did from JPL, NASA, um, of the acoustic chamber. Um, basically, we just feed that low-end rumble um, through all these main speakers instead of just relying on subwoofers. Um, and so it's basically like an acoustic chamber that they blast nitrogen air just to recreate um, a launch environment inside a rocket just to test their hardware components to make sure they survive. Um, so uh, besides all of that, um, um, with the way that Damien wants it to be more like visceral and dangerous, so um, we added like rising, various turbine rising in pitch, um, so um, that we could help keep adding up the tension and also you know, uh, angry animal roars and stuff. Let, let's, let's listen to the first pass and then uh, you guys will have better context. Select sounds.
I think it's hard to believe that that's not even the full mix because it sounds pretty full already and it's pretty amazing. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys just about like, okay, there's a wonderful like immersive space to play with here. How do you even attack a scene like that? Uh, how, how do you treat your front channels? How do you treat your surrounds? How do you treat yourselves? Like there's an amazing dynamics going on there. Since I do, did the dialogue, it's easy. I'm down the chute. I mean, I'm in the center channel pretty much <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> but the rest is, uh, which, which is, you know, there's something to be said about that because, you know, knowing you don't know light from dark. You know, they have to. You have to see dark in order to see what light is. And it's the same way here. When you when you have something mono, if you play a scene mostly mono down the center channel, then when you hit something in the surrounds on the sides, it's like, whoa, wow, it's a big eye opener. And that's, you know. That's uh, easy on this film because it allows you to do that often. Just for instance, the last scene where you're sitting there and you're just breathing, and then all of a sudden when that ship fires up, it hits everywhere, and it's like, wow, it really blows your mind. And same thing here, same exact thing here. So it, it, uh, the space is used, um, you know, really kind of sparingly, you know, so you always get, the, again, going back to dynamics because space is dynamics. How much of this was animatics for you, Damien, when, when you were pre-visiting this scene? Did you already understand the pacing and kind of h how you wanted it to progress? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, <clears throat> I mean, certainly it was the same structure as this. And uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, it was uh, you know, it's the kind of thing with a lot of these animatics. It's, uh, you know, uh, in many ways it was very similar. In many ways it was very different. You know, the, 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 I, I think we did figure out the pacing, the structure, the, the sort of basic ebb and flow, obviously the content of what was going to actually happen. Um, all of that was figured out in the animatic. Uh, that was used to then shoot. Uh, when you're shooting, you discover certain things, certain angles are better than you thought and vice versa. Um, you go into the edit, you sort of lean into the strongest stuff. Um, and, you know, but again, I think this, this was a scene that really didn't come alive until, until it was in the sound team's hands. Um, and uh, with all the set pieces uh, in the movie, but particularly this one, um, Tom and I, you know, we would kind of do our, like a very rough sort of sound pass of our own. Uh, again, kind of in the spirit of the animatic, sort of as, as a guideline, we'd pass it off to, uh, to these folks. Um, Eileen would give us, uh, pretty early on in the edit, well before we're on the mix stage, would give us her own kind of rough pass then of, of basically an effects pass that we could then lay on top of our dialogue and, and passes. And actually, Susan and Millie were also doing some dialogue work for us at the time as well, kind of getting the, the comms and all that stuff sounding good. So we had rough versions of all this stuff. Uh, and then Tom and I would then use that to re-edit the picture too. And so again, it was this idea of sound not waiting till the end, but coming pretty early on in the process. So that by the time we're on the mix stage, we've been through several rounds of both picture and sound, several rounds of the mix together, almost pre-mixes, and then you kind of get to actually sit down and, and, and only focus on sound for a while in a way that you can in editorial. I think that obviously comes from uh, from a place that you understand the use of sound as a storytelling mechanism. You understand that it's gonna give enough information to the audience that you don't need them like yelling like, "Oh my gosh, next thruster's going!" Like all like kind of like the old school like, "Oh, here comes the next one!" Like like we get it. Like you know like we're not gonna spoon feed it to the audience. Uh, is that terrifying as a director knowing that you're gonna have to figure it out or at least 
really have it solidified on, on, you know, at, at the sound stage? Or is it just a matter of you're excited to get to this point when you can't have it fully realized? Well, I, well, I, I mean, I think with this scene and the X-15 earlier, I mean, I think there was a lot of before the animatics, just kind of uh, at script level concern from a lot of people about whether whether this could sustain, whether you could actually do a sequence entirely within um, capsules or whatnot, or whether there was a reason that they tend to not do it that way. And, and we, uh, you know, at a certain point, you kind of don't know for sure until you try it. So the animatic at least suggested that it would work. It doesn't tell you for sure that it, that it works because it's, you know, it's drawings, it's, it's archival footage cobbled together. It is what it is, but it suggests it. Um, but I, you know, I think uh, I think by the by the time we at least had sort of a rough edit, we kind of knew that the idea of it would work. It's just it becomes you know it becomes how long you can sustain it. Becomes how much information does the audience need to appreciate it? How uh, uh, you know how much is too much information? Um, uh, usually that's the case with these kind of scenes because there is so much in the way of comms and details of dials and whatnot. Um, we often found that we had to actually simplify the number of dials we would be seeing. You know we'd have to kind of reduce close-ups of you know any dial but say an altimeter or but you know just and decide okay for this scene the altimeter is the important thing for the spin later, it's the uh, gyroscope is the important thing. And everything else kind of takes a backseat. So you kind of learn those things. And, um, uh, and, and the, the, I think the same applies to sound as well. You often are paring down rather than adding. John, do you have something you want to say? I was going to say that um, that's, you know, the you're talking about, you know, going early on. Because what happens for, you know, as mixers, a lot of the time, it's uh, they go through so much of the process in the edit room with Tom and Damien and Eileen also. So a lot of the things are set up, and Frankie and I will come in at the very, you know, before it gets to the stage. In this case, it was probably six weeks, maybe two months before we got to the stage and started pre-dubbing. We get to watch it and to see what Damien's, you know, going for. And um, you get a, you know, so we can develop our own idea just from watching the movie from where they're at. And uh, immediately it was like, oh, okay, cool cool documentary style, not doing, this is not a, f a flashy, this is a, you know, keep it as real as possible. So the thing was, you know, for me on the dialogue side was the comms, because a lot of comms later in the movie are, are real comms and have a very just authentic sound to them. So during pre-dubs, when I go through, after Susan has prepared all the tracks and Millie has given me all the ADR and everything, going through and listening to the real comms and trying to match the new comms that are recorded today and matching those to the old comms with the idea of, you know, further is more futz and so forth. But it's, um, even that being said, it's uh, it's it's experimenting the whole way, you know, and a lot of times it'll be, oh, that's too much or not enough or, you know, let's try this. And it's, so it's the exact same sort of thing. You are you're investigating things as it goes along. That's great. Um, so let's play the final mix.
is running, that is also running. So the thing to say is, okay, it's this isn't probably any louder than any other film. It's just it's visceral. You feel it. There's an energy. There's a texture that you guys are creating. What can you say about that when it comes to dynamics? It's you know people. Uh, so many times you walk out of a film, people say that, that was physically like it hurt me. This this film does not feel that way. I've never felt that this was like oh my gosh, I can't enjoy what's going on. It really pulls you in. How do you create that? What 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 are some of the tips? What are some of the steps you have to do to not hurt the audience and make them hate you, but I mean, yet still have that visceral aspect? I think one uh, one of the things that we, um, you know, JT and Frankie and I, we did, um, you know, I mean, besides like compressing and limiting, and so it's almost about like frequencies. Um, sometimes, you know, certain like mid-rangey kind of frequency that kind of bites and hurts you. Um, um, we are very careful about um, like a lot of these like metal shakes and creaks. It can you know very easily just like uh, be really um, piercing to your ears. So uh, we are really careful with those and uh, a lot of EQs and and uh, with this because of this we want to give it an analog kind of feel um, to the to the to the size and the um, the angriness of it. So you know we used a lot of like. Um, Processing of like overmodulation distortion sounds, uh, distortion plugins to process, you know, all these like big sounds, like um, these explosions and you know animal roars and shrieks. Um, 
Yeah. You know, one thing one thing that uh, that helps also is that, as you can tell, the Neil is calm again. You know, when his delivery, it's not like he's yelling out to somebody. He's talking to somebody that's right in his microphone. So when you have that dialogue that is very, you know, calm and sort of sedate in a way, uh, and it's not elevated, then it's easier to make other things around it sound very loud. Um, so that's that's that was very helpful just in the direction, which is absolute. In fact, there was a when after in the last scene or the scene before when they shut the the door, um, there was a reaction. I don't know if you remember this, but he had a little bit of a like a scared reaction. And Frank was all, man, Neil Armstrong would not do that. <laughs> you know, you better put a more sedate sort of just like I'm all good here. You know, just put a regular breath. And that was his character. And this scene, you know, it just again gives you it gives you a chance to have more dynamics because you always have that base level of calm. So anything above that is sounds big. And something, a question for you, Susan. Uh, I mean, di breathing is dialogue. The the rhythm, the pacing, the, the loudness of it. What can you say? How did you guys achieve? Is that Ryan doing his own breathing? How did you guys achieve that? Yeah, I believe largely it is Ryan doing his own breathing, either from production or from ADR sessions. Um, sometimes there might be a group vocal in there, here and there, but it's mostly Ryan, I think. Um, and I think Millie, our ADR supervisor, did a lot of work to sculpt those performances, some in the Avid with Tom and Damien, and some here. When did you guys identify that breathing was, I mean, did you know that going in, like, breathing is going to be a really good tool to use to set kind of the perspective of, of our character? Yeah, I think since maybe we saw 2001, you are aware that breathing is going to be important in a space movie. Um, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, especially with someone like Neil who talks very rarely. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, you uh, or doesn't kind of overtly display emotion, uh, 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 you know, in a very outward way. So little things become very important, you know, little things in Ryan's face, little sonic things like the breathing or like, uh, you know, Frankie was talking about the little rustles in the suit jacket or the way a hand, uh, you know, glove crinkles up or anything like that. Those, it was really important even with all the bombast and scope of kind of some of these bigger scenes to make sure we were keeping the ear of the movie attuned to the really little things because Neil was someone who operated, ironically for someone who, you know, traversed the cosmos, who's someone who operated in the uber micro. So it was important the sound reflected that. Something that, um, that I find really fascinating, I appreciate, I appreciate what you did is um, shooting in, on film, I guess the space walks, they're 16 millimeters, is that right? So knowing that the, the, the quality, the fidelity, whatever, is not gonna be um, pristine, uh, what did that kind of? How did that set the tone for you from, from day one, knowing that there's gonna be a look and feel to this? You, obviously, you want it to be in the right time and place, but how, how did that maybe even accentuate it even further for you, knowing that it's not gonna be so much about the picture? There's there's more to do with sound. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, in a way, we knew that the sound would, the sound would have to, I guess, you know sort of be a balancing act. Uh, it would have to feel authentic to the picture, and the picture has that, that grainy 16-millimeter analog older look. Uh, 
um, so the sound can't be too polished. But we also knew that the sound was really going to be the thing to yoke this to the 21st century. This, the sound was really going to be the thing to make it immersive and three-dimensional and, you know, virtual reality-like in a way that, um, you know, 16-millimeter photography on its own just doesn't. Um, so it was trying to find that wet, that, that marriage between, between the intimacy we loved uh, in the 16 and what we wanted to capture with the cinematography and then, the, again, the, the idea of space, the, the larger-than-lifeness of space and of what these people were doing that we hoped the sound would help convey. Just, just being... Uh, a filmmaker myself how is it to shoot film for you obviously it was probably fed right into the this is the most fitting um, medium but what are some of those limitations what are when it even comes to just knowing placement of camera some of the later scenes like we'll see the moonwalk it's an IMAX camera so you're going even bigger but what can you say just about having a, a film format play into influencing your own kind of aesthetic choices or where you can put cameras and and um, composition um, well, you know, I mean, uh, I think uh, certainly doesn't doesn't limit you. I think um, I think uh, I mean IMAX is a is the one case where you know the it's a difficult workflow on uh, during actual shooting. The mags are so small, and you know reload time is such so that you really have to kind of be prepared for and know what you're doing. Um, but for the rest of the movie, I mean, we wanted to shoot it in a very documentary way, you know, not, not just try to get that look, but have a freedom, have a 360-ness to the camera, improvise, um, go off script, uh, discover things on set. Um, you know, it's partly why we did most of the effects in camera, instead of using green screen or anything, it was just, you know, projection outside the window, and just old school effects, so everything's in camera, the actors are reacting to stuff, they're in a capsule that's moving, and they can kind of react naturally, and the camera can react naturally, so, um, so we shot a lot, you know, uh, you know, almost as though it were digital, we just, uh, uh shot a lot and a lot, uh, and we were shooting on small cameras, 16 millimeter, uh, uh, you know, gives you the Super 16, you can get, uh, you know, four 400 foot uh, mags, so you get 10 minute loads, you know, and so that's actually a good a good chunk of time of just being able to roll and roll through continuous takes. We would try to do a lot of these flights continuously, um, not Ryan chop was, it up. Ryan was in there for 10 minutes, just like keep keep going, you're doing great. Yeah, I mean, Rush, often we would really? yeah, we would just go until we rolled out, and then we'd have to take a quick break as we slotted it in, and we'd go again. Um, so it didn't feel, it felt very, you know, certainly nothing was impeded by by um, by the film aspect and the 16 cameras also are it's why the real astronauts used them they're small you know so they can fit into these tiny capsules so setting up our, our final clip here the moon surface uh walk and speech um susan i'd love for you to kind of describe and also damien we obviously have the recording everyone's heard it most likely and they're familiar with it but now we have to make it fit within this film and, and ryan's voice so when did the discussions where did the discussion start about how to approach this scene, and how did you guys kind of walk through this? I believe these discussions started very early on. Um, I know that early on in post-production, uh, our editor, Tom Cross, sent the uh, production take to Millie to work on. And uh, do you want to play the original recording? Yeah, it'd be great. So the first one is just the... The see. first one is the historical Neil Armstrong. Uh, at the foot of the ladder, the lamb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches, uh, although the surface appears to be uh, very 
fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder. Ground mass uh, is very fine. I'm going to step off the lamb now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Okay, so I actually have the opportunity now to play for you um, um, uh, <laughs> more Ryan Gosling. Um, <laughs> Ryan Gosling's original production dialogue. So he listened to that recording, of course, and he it inspired his performance, and here's what he did. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The limb footbeds are only uh, uh, depressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches, although the surface appears to be uh, uh, very, very fine-grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder down there, uh, very fine. I'm gonna step off the limb now. That's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind. And so actually, just to inform you a little bit more specifically, that was something that uh, Millie had edited for timing, but was his original words otherwise unaltered. So if you'll bear with me, I'm actually, can you listen to this two more times? <laughs> All right, really? Great. Okay. So uh, this third pass is what uh, Millie did by using uh, Revoice Pro to match pitch, and she, then she also edited the original recording to save, like the air tone and the squelches and some of the dropouts and uh, some of actually Neil's actual breaths. And so she took that, put these things together, uh, put some futz box on it, and made something we could put back into the Avid. So this is third pass. I'm uh, at the foot of the ladder. The limb footbeds are only... Uh, uh, Pressed in the surface about uh, one or two inches, although the surface appears to be uh, very, very fine grained as you get close to it. It's almost like a powder down there. Uh, very fine. I'm going to step off the limb now. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Okay, and then last we have the finished film now for the, the last thing. Um, this went through JT. and uh, We spent about 45 minutes actually going back and forth between Nils' actual futz. I mean, after it was perfectly in sync, we spent 
How long was it? We spent a fair amount of time actually making sure this landed because Damien was going to come down and say, hey, how come this doesn't sound exactly like Neil's stuff? So we spent a lot of time on it, and uh, we, we at the end, we were able to go back and forth between Ryan and Neil's voice, and it's exactly, you can switch back and forth and not tell the difference. Was that a map for you, Damien, in terms of you had the original recording, you write, you block out, I mean, that's going to be the master. Is that exactly verbatim in terms of the original recording is, or is there dead time taken out? Or Oh, you mean in terms of timing? Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's not. Uh, the, yeah, yes, there's time alterations because we're, we're, we're going off of uh, what we want in the edit. Uh, it's pretty close uh, to, to if you play that section of the recording unaltered, um, but uh, the timings are slightly different but we you know we wanted to I think something I really liked in the original recording including parts that precede this clip here is uh, are just the, the the real pauses that he took the kind of I think we're used to hearing the soundbite version of this either just the last bit or the whole thing but kind of you know delivered pretty quickly um, but the time and care with which he took uh, what was going on. It helps you sit in the significance of what's happening. To me, the, the power of the scene is all in the space, the air between the lines. And so we wanted to make sure that that really resonated and um, uh, not, to, not to trim that too much. I think we had earlier cuts that were slightly longer and we had to shave down, but you want to leave this somewhat fat. I think we're gonna play the full mix next, I guess, right? Um, so we're gonna start a little bit earlier from when they are inside the uh, lunar lander trying to open up the hatch door. This is Houston, F2, one one sixtieth second for shadow photography on the sequence camera. Okay.
Something that you'd see if you went back even earlier, the the scene leading up to this is uh, them coming down, they're running out of fuel, and Justin's cue really builds up the tension. And it's like, oh my gosh, we've now made it. But wait, now we have to do something that no one's ever done before. And there's a different type of tension. It's a different type of energy. And you guys are really patient uh, with this scene. You don't really rush into it. It's not like, okay, because obviously you're building up to this moment. What can you say, Damien, about knowing that this is going to kind of be the climax, potentially, you know, of what the whole reason for um, Neil's character story is. H how did you want to kind of manage kind of quietly walking into a, a scene like this? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it, uh, I mean, I guess, again, it was sort of what JT's been saying about dynamics, just the idea of having something to then counter it. Um, so in a way, we, the, the, the whole kind of climax altogether of the movie had to be this two-pronged thing. It had to be the landing, um, which is a very, in the movie, very loud, muscular, kind of bombastic event. And then uh, you want to do basically the polar opposite of that. Um, so I, th I think we approached the, the walk on the moon, the actual sort of exit onto the lunar surface um, in general as trying to do the opposite of everything the movie has done before. Uh, so where the movie has been very shaky handheld before, now we're on sticks or on a crane. The movie has been pretty grainy beforehand. Now we're on IMAX, no grain at all. Uh, or almost none, um, you know, the, uh, uh, there's been a sort of array of different uh, colors in the palette before. Now you're on this very almost monochromatic or, or kind of bichromatic uh, uh, surface. Um, so, you know, and, and we've just come from a very loud scene uh, where the mix was, uh, uh, in terms of the combo, I'd say, of, of sound effects and Justin score, probably altogether the thickest, densest, loudest it's ever been in the movie, um, probably when they're kind of uh, coming over the lunar surface. Uh, so now we do not just a sort of um, uh, a kind of subliminal dropout of sound where you keep something uh, uh, going, now we do a complete dropout of sound um, as though someone turned off the the uh, the system on the theater, which is what people thought had happened when we first screened the movie, <laughs> um, and there was quite a lot of concern among the audience. But uh, uh, and then a little fight broke out because someone started yelling back, "Well, that's how it is on the moon." <laughs> it was, it was you really, mean in space? <laughs> it's like uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you were there. Yeah. yeah, and then the other lady kept repeating it. But where's the sound? <laughs> you know, like the times when the director has an intention and then the audience thinks the director's wrong? <laughs> That's really confusing. So I congratulate you on sticking to your guns because obviously people have a, you know, like a preconceived notion of like, oh, this is how things should sound. Obviously, that's not always how it goes or the most interesting. So, Well, you're just trying to surprise people, I guess. And, and, uh, and um, but again, I think uh, uh, certainly this was a surprise that relied on the rest of the movie, you know, so, so just trying to kind of unwind what we've done earlier in the movie, um, especially on a sound level, and just distill this down to very 
very little down to just, you know, the particulars of how Neil or Ryan is saying these words and uh, just a few shots, pretty simple shot selection showing what he's doing as he says those words. And that was kind of it. We sort of knew that with a moment like this, you actually, you just, you don't want to muck with it too much. You want to kind of let it breathe. Yeah. It's such a precious moment, you know, I really, for me, that's what, when I first saw it and first watched it, and then, you know, of course, the, the drop that happens a little bit here, is it was so precious and just took me, so I thought the, uh, you know, the, the quietness of it was so loud because it just spoke volumes, the, just that one, um, image of him dropping the bracelet was like, wow, I mean, just huge. So I, I, I love this scene, absolutely love this scene. Yeah, I guess what I, guess what I would add is that I really enjoyed pre-dubbing this particular area with JT because we were A-being it. I mean, he was fooling me. I couldn't call it anymore. We got it so close. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just to try to recreate a moment of history, uh, was just, I got goosebumps from yeah, yeah, the work, which was fun. And in a sense, um, you know, with the silence, and we stay in this pure silence for, for, for a sound person, a longer time than expected. <laughs> um, but in a sense, it, it kind of, uh, you know, with this, like, you know, the way that Damien wants to play, like, leading up to it, to have the sudden, overwhelming, like, crescendo of sound to overwhelm you, you know, like a sensory overload, and then suddenly just drops off a cliff into, like, nothing. Um, but meanwhile, like, visually, you see that you're finally on the moon. It kind of makes you taking the image and, you know, taking the, the reality. And, you know, and it being so silent for so long, it kind of adds up the anxiety, and, and, and like uh, a sense of anticipation um, in, in the scene for me. Um, so... Last question for you, Damien. Coming from a film like La La Land, where everything is, you know, they're saying they're they're singing their lines. There's music to drive a scene, and you kind of it's it's the the the, rock, the foundation of a movie, and then the great contrast of a film like this. What have you learned? What surprised you? What challenged you when it came to working with your sound team on a film like this, um, and and just utilizing all the different tools that sound allows? Well, I mean, I think uh, it was it was really fun to get to, and I guess really for the first time for me to get to um, work on uh, you know these sort of sustained set pieces that uh, are all about sound and image, where people aren't talking, but where you know something like the opening uh, scene or or the Gemini launch. Um, where cinema gets kind of reduced to its essentials. It just is about sound and image. Um, and uh, just getting to play around with how much you can express just with those uh, with those tools. Um, it certainly helps to have a phenomenal sound team uh, willing to take on that challenge. Um, but yeah, that sort of approach of trying to tell a story fully with uh, um, in moments like that, especially those kind of diegetic moments that aren't about dialogue, they aren't even about score, they're just about sort of raw uh, sound and, uh, and image and how, you know, how those things answer each other or respond to each other. Um, um, you know, uh, I'll always, I think, have my heart in, a, in, in music in a way, that that's still kind of how I think I begin thinking about a movie is musically, but something on this that felt different for me and a fun new challenge was to try to um, look at just these diegetic sound scenes, um, things like launches and just how much musicality really you can get out of the sound of a, a rocket or a thruster or a, you know, whatnot. 
or rhinoceroses or whatever <laughs> I liked to throw in there. <laughs> I think that's a great point. And uh, anyone who has it, you should definitely check out the soundtrack. Uh, I've been listening to it, and I just find that, you know, you take it out of the context of the picture, and you just live with that wonderful music. There's an incredible experience there, too, and I think Justin's score is phenomenal and, and worth checking out. But um, you guys, thank you so much for coming out tonight, for sharing your stories, and for spending a little time talking about something that I don't think is really ever overlooked. People always know that sounds important. It just, there's never opportunities like this to really fully dive into something and and really appreciate how well uh, of a storytelling tool it can be. So thank you guys so much, and thank you guys for coming out tonight. Thank you.